Until Google DeepMind came into the field, protein structure prediction was dominated by academics. Protein structure prediction is the process of predicting how a protein will fold by looking at genetic code. Protein structure prediction is a perfect field to approach through the application of deep learning because the inputs are highly dimensional and there is a plentiful array of different sets of labeled data. Protein structure deep learning is a field in which many different approaches can be taken, often involving supervised learning and reinforcement learning. Mohamed Al-Qureshi is a systems biologist at Harvard. His background spans computer engineering, statistics, and genetics. In his work, Mohamed explores the interplay between biology and computer systems. One area of Mohamed's focus is protein structure prediction. In a blog post last year, Mohamed gave a brief history of protein structure prediction and described the significance of DeepMind entering the field. DeepMind's AlphaFold technology surpassed all other competitors in the most recent CASP protein structure competition. Mohamed joins the show to discuss biology, academia, deep learning, and deep mind. Mohamed is wonderful at explaining complex ideas in elegant terms, and I deeply enjoyed the conversation we had together. Recent updates from Software Engineering Daily Land. Podsheets is our open source set of tools for managing podcasts and podcast businesses. We have a new version of Software Daily, our app and ad-free subscription service, available at softwaredaily.com. And we're looking for help with Android engineering, QA, machine learning, and other roles. You can find our Software Daily Find Collabs in the show notes for this episode. The Find Collabs hackathon has ended. The winners will probably be announced by the time this episode airs. We will be announcing our next hackathon in a few weeks, so please stay tuned. The links for all these updates are in the show notes. Let's get on with the show. Mohamed Al-Qureshi, you are a systems biology fellow at Harvard. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much for having me. I'd like to start with some of your background before we get into a discussion of proteins and deep learning. You've studied computer engineering, biology, statistics, and genetics. How would you describe your research interest? Um, so I guess I'm a computational biologist. That's what I would call myself. And in general, I'm interested in using machine learning and just algorithms in general to try to understand molecular interactions. So how molecules interact in the cell, and then using that to sort of say something about how cells behave and how diseases arise. Do you think of biology as a statistical process with some uh, unknown paths, or do you think of it more as a deterministic process? No, I, th I would say it's very much a probabilistic process, but it has, you know, it's, it's not entirely random, right? So it has elements of logic and things that one would, one would associate with computer programs and software, but it's sort of imbued with that kind of probabilistic flavor, if that makes sense. So it's 2019. What are the areas of biology that have become easier to innovate within thanks to modern computation? Certainly genetics and genomics. I mean, those are, those are the big ones, right, where they're very data-driven, and we have just so much data that we could, we could certainly leverage computation. Uh, but I would like to think as well that the things I work on, molecular modeling, molecular biology, trying to understand how biological molecules do things. That's definitely benefited in the last decade, and I think we're going to see a lot more changes and improvements in the, in the upcoming few years. Are there any other areas that maybe they're not quite ready yet to be approachable through computational biology, but maybe they're around the corner, like there's some cool stuff going on in the lab, some promising experiments? What's around the corner? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, people have been talking about systems biology for a long time. And the idea there is that you're, you're not only modeling sort of individual things, but you're modeling systems of things, right? How, how many molecules or even how many cells come together to do, to do stuff. And I, and I would say that hasn't quite yet reached the level of maturity to sort of be useful broadly. Uh, but, but I think that's some, so, so it's at the moment, I would say out, still outside the reach of, of computation, but I think that may well be on the corner five to 10 years. And one thing that strikes me as being hard about biology, I mean, biology is like computer science in that we're looking at these large complex systems with these different 
levels of abstraction and these different high-level abstractions that get composed together in useful ways. But the stark difference between biology and computer science is that with computer science or software architecture, we can abstract away from the areas that we're less sure of, like like physics. We kind of have these low-level corrective mechanisms to bend physics into being in states like one and zero. You know, at a lower level, obviously, it's it's a much more of a, a granular system. But you know, at the level that that we get to operate it at, it's the one or zero level, which is such a, a profound breakthrough in in technology. But in biology, again, there's so much we don't know. It is this analog system in, in some sense. And there's so many different pathways and chemical relationships that we don't understand. How, as a systems, as a systems biologist, how can you gain any confidence in your theories when there are so many confounding variables? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there, right? So a few things to say. In some ways, genetic information is is digital, right? So so at least at the level of genetics, you know, sort of life has figured out a way to encode things using you know four bits instead of two bits, right? With ACGT, uh, which is interesting. And that I mean, you know, a priori maybe that wasn't obvious that that would be the case. And I, and I think that's in some ways that's what drew me to biology actually is to oh wow, this is digital too. It's, it looks it looks a lot like computer science. But you're quite right in that it's, it's different in, in many other ways, including the fact that at least some aspects of the computation done by biology is, is analog. And, and maybe more, I, I, to, to me personally, what I think is actually the biggest difference between uh, computer science and biology is the fact that the, lab, that the former is, is human-engineered, so it's, they're, they're human artifacts, while biology is not. And so the kind of design principles or the intuition that we have for how abstractions ought to be built in computer science don't really show up at all or at least they show up in a very different way in biology because they, they, they all sort of evolved organically. They have this sort of trajectory that, that's very kind of uh, cumulative and iterative, quite different than, than computer science or than you know, just software programs. And so that to me is really the biggest, the biggest gap between those two, the two things or the, the two worlds. So when I was in college, I studied biology for a little bit and then I switched to computer science. And in that transition point, there were a couple books that I looked at. I, I didn't make it through either of them in their entirety. You know, the, I read like probably five to 15 pages in each of these books and kind of skimmed them. But it stood out to me as as some kind of gap bridges between the fields of computer science and biology. And one of them was the selfish gene, which it takes this kind of bottoms up um, or to, or bottom to top evolutionary you know kind of discussion of sort of how the primordial soup might have been turned into first the lower level abstractions that you know underpin biology and then eventually uh, led to these higher level organisms that we have and then the other book was this Titanic book the the Gödel Escher Bach book which is is it, interesting in the sense that it 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 talks about like these lower these idea of lower level languages and and does bridge some gap between the ATCG and the one and zero world but it but I found I found that book to be a little bit too it was hard for me to I guess you know he gets in, into such detail and tries to draw so many different analogies that it becomes really hard for me to to really make sense of, of what arguments he's trying to make at least that's my five to fifteen page uh, amateurish critique of it, but can you go a little bit deeper on on the bridge between computer science and biology, and and what you see as the uh, perhaps the parallels between the two worlds? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, by the way, these are both great books. I, I actually, they, they, to me, they were very influential. I, I read them when I was you know from college or even earlier in high school, and they, they definitely had a very big influence on, on my thinking. So I think they're both great books. Good Elisha and Bach, incidentally, I think is, is really more focused on the question of consciousness instead of maybe neuroscience and a little bit less about biology, broadly construed. But but that but that's sort of beside the point. Yeah, I mean, I think so. In some ways, right? I think maybe the fundament, the, the most fundamental unity between computer science and, and biology is the fact that they're, they're both trying to, or they both have built programs, right? So, so this notion of you want to build some sort of reactive kind of object that's doing something, that has some purpose, that's able to interact with this environment. Um, you know, in our case, in the computer science case, it's, it's, it's a user or, or another program interacting with it. In, in biology, it's other organisms and it's, it's where it lives, Right, uh, that's the environment, but then it's able to interact with that environment to do stuff and to, in the case of biology, to survive and, and 
procreate and so on, right? So, so they're both trying to execute some sort of logic. And, and, and that kind of basic premise, I think, is really the thing that unifies those two sort of very distinct kind of classes of phenomenon. And, and so insofar as one is trying to do this, both for a human engineer designing a program or for, for a life form evolving over, over eons, to, to be successful in doing that, the idea of abstraction, right, the idea of, of hierarchy, of sort of building things from, from more primitive components and then you know, building layers upon layers, that approach is, is very useful. Right, because it, it allows, well, it's interesting, right? because from the, from the perspective of the human designer, it allows one to reason about these systems, to, to do reuse, right, and that sort of thing, kind of modular architectures. In, in biology, you don't have this notion of reasoning over the system that we do in, in human engineered programs, uh, but you definitely have this notion of reuse, where, where sort of biological systems become more evolvable if they are using abstractions and if they are using kind of these primitives built out of smaller primitives. And so in that case, there are, there are clear parallels. And this, this is at least kind of one aspect of, of your question. All right. Well, let's begin to move from the philosophical into the concrete. I'd like to give a little bit of a, of a, a biological review for, for software engineers who never took a look at biology or who are a little bit foggy in their recollections, because we need to talk about what a protein is. Can you explain what role proteins play in our body and kind of what a protein is at a fundamental level? Sure. So one way of looking at proteins is that they are nanomachines, right? They're these small molecular machines that do stuff. And they do many things. They do mechanical things. They do structural things. They do informational processing things. So on the mechanical side, for example, they actually, you know, they're these sort of cargo walkers that transport things across, across the cell. And, and that transport process is done uh, using proteins. They're also information processors. So there are proteins that sit at the surface of your cells and they sense what's going on inside and outside of the cell. And based on that, they execute new commands, uh, effectively sort of transmitting information. Uh, so, so they're really kind of the, the workhorses, the things that actually do stuff in your cell. One thing I think is interesting, the, the kind of the paral- a parallel we could draw between proteins, perhaps proteins and programs, or proteins and modules, or proteins and applications, versus uh, the, the code that leads to those uh, applications. You know, in the, in the protein world, you have the, the ATCG, for, in the case of DNA, but not only is it, you know, and, ver- and then you have the, you know, the ones and zeros, obviously, that, that compile into these, these grand, or, well, I guess these grandiose program text gets, gets compiled down into ones and zeros, so it can kind of have the, the code to the ones and zeros, and then the ones and zeros get run. But in, in the cell, what's cool is you have, you kind of have these, you have the applications running, which are the proteins, and then there's also like the concurrently, there's also genetic code that's just like floating around, and then like there's other proteins that are on the genetic code kind of acting as Turing machines on that genetic code and producing more proteins. And so within the the cellular structure, it's like you have continuous compilation alongside the computation, which I think is a little bit different than at least our current computation models. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a, it's not a von Neumann machine, right? I mean, that's that's what's really cool about it, is that the notion that the information substrate and the kind of the, the actual executioners, they're, they're all sort of mangled up because they're all molecules at the end of the day. And so you have, you have information being... T- you know, being transmuted into machines, but then these machines sort of directly operate on the on the information. It's all enta- in, all entangled. So it's quite different architecturally. And just uh, parenthetically, as a computer scientist, when I went into biology, this was for me the the, the sort of the, the most difficult paradigmatic shift I had to make because I really came to it from from you know someone like a computer engineer, somebody who's who's who thinks in terms of memory and, and disk and, and 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 logic and so on and you know CPUs and and, and this was just so different. So these proteins are made inside of our bodies. How well do we understand the biological pathways of protein creation? So on, the, on, you know, on one level, we understand it very well, right? In the sense that we know that proteins are specified by genes. So these are contiguous segments or even non-contiguous segments of DNA. And, that, and there's sort of a, a mapping, a, a code that takes you from basically triplets of DNA bases, you know, like the A, Gs, and Ts, 
to a, a different language, if you may, a 20-letter alphabet that makes up proteins. And, and proteins are, are chains made up of this 20-amino acid or 20-letter alphabet. So in that, in that sense, we understand it very well. Uh, what we don't understand, uh, what, once you have the sequence, you know, this, this arrangement of, of the 20-letter alphabet for, for a given protein, uh, we don't know what the resulting protein will look like. And, and often, the, the shape of the protein determines what it does. So we have this, in some ways, this kind of shallow understanding. We kind of know the mapping of like what, what makes up a protein, but then we don't really understand how that makeup translates into function and structure. So perhaps, to draw a tortured analogy, we don't really understand how the compiler works. Yeah, in a sense, that's a reasonable. I mean, that's one way of looking at it, sure. Okay. We'll talk, talk a little bit more about that. So in what ways is that analogy wrong? We've got this genetic code that's, that's floating around. We've got these finished proteins that result from that genetic code. Why is the process from getting to genetic code to the finished protein so opaque? Well, right. So actually, there's another um, wrinkle here, which I think is worth mentioning with respect to how this is different from computer science, is that you actually don't have a compiler for the most part, right? Uh, this is all driven by self-assembly. So it's all driven by the laws of physics. You don't have something that says, sits there and says, I'm going to, I mean, you sort of do, but, but it's not, not in the same way that compilers work in the sense that you're actually, you know, you're doing this sort of, you, you take a protein sequence and you fold it. And instead, it's just basically a chemical process that, that gives you the, the, the protein. Uh, but, but the challenge becomes is that now that we have this protein and, and in its initial state, it's effectively like the, the uncompiled state. It's basically just a, it's like a thread. It's a chain in, in 3D space, but it doesn't have a, doesn't have a shape, a well-defined shape. But then just through going through the motions of, of, of physics, that thread takes on a well-defined three-dimensional shape. You can could, you could think of that as like the compilation, but the, the compiler is just physics, right? And the challenge here is that that process is very complex. There are very, very many possibilities that, that could arise in terms of how, how you go from the initial shape to the final shape. And it's not something that we have sort of fully understood. We don't, we don't fully understand. And, and actually, if we want to simulate it, it's computationally very intensive. So there's that too. So just to go uh, a little bit into the physics, uh, and by the way, I failed physics in, uh, in, in high school. So, uh, you know, this may be really tortured. But I think like as it kind of works, uh, you ha- and I think I got a C in chemistry, but um, you have, you know, uh, DNA, which is deoxyribonucleic acid. That's right. and, and that's like these, you know, these amino acids, the ATCGs, and they're situated in, in these uh, so base pairs. Those are the base, they're not the, nucle- the, amino- the amino acids are different, right? The amino acids are what make up a protein. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay, right, right, right. So, so you have, uh, what, so what are, what are the ATCGs again? They make up the DNA. Right, and the the ATCGs make up the DNA, and the amino acids make up the proteins. Okay, and there's and there's basically four DNA letters, if you may, and there are twenty protein letters. Okay, so maybe actually I should I shouldn't be the one explaining this. Maybe you could just give me a little bit more of the outline of this the structure of this DNA like string or i think you described it as a thread that's like floating around and it's like let's say this this dna thread has been manifested in the cell somehow like some some other protein has perhaps produced it or it's gotten created somehow i don't remember how it gets created and then you've got this thread and this thread has different physical forces pushing on it in different directions that cause it to fold into something useful can can you just describe in a little bit more detail those pressures on the folding Sure. So, I, so let me just step back for a moment. So there's actually <laughs> sure, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's in some ways two threads here. So one thread is the DNA thread, if you may, and that's the full size of it. The full thing is, is our genome, right? There's actually multiple threads in, like, say, the human genome. But but basically, you could think of our genome as one long thread of DNA. Okay, and that's one particular chemical structure, and it's sort of made out of these these four different letters that are repeated in a non uh, aperiodic way. That's one piece. And that's effectively like an instruction manual that describes the entirety of, of our genome. Now, there are small stretches of that DNA that sort of, quote-unquote, code for proteins. So, you know, a, a small stretch of DNA effectively gets read off and then used as a, as a basis to make a protein. And now, now so, that, so now the, the protein is, is a different thread. It's a different kind of thread, right? The chemistry is completely different. And in particular, it's made out of those 
one of, you know it's 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 made of a chain of twenty of one of twenty possible letters and and this chain is well I mean the 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 letters are repeated in a, in a non in a non aperiodic way so different proteins will have different sequences of these amino acids does that make sense so far it does yes okay so the DNA has has interesting structure but that's not really sort of our concern today and it's not it's not in some ways maybe it's not that interesting although some people will, will hate me for saying that P- proteins have a lot more interesting structure the, the forces that operate on proteins are sort of much richer in a way so the the the, the question of, of structure really kind of comes to, into play on, on on proteins and not so much on DNA so so there are many forces that that play a role one of the most important is is what's known as sort of hydrophobicity and, and that has to do so hydro is water phobicity is like you know fear of <laughs> so, uh, so it's effectively you know our cells are, are they have a lot of water in them right and many of the forces that drive how the protein falls have to do with whether any given part of protein likes to be next to water or doesn't if it likes to be next to water then it's probably going to end up being on the surface if it doesn't like to be next to water it's going to be buried inside the protein and so that's at least one type of force that plays a large role in how proteins end up folding. Okay, let's start to move towards the discussion of something that's related to, to software engineering. There is this field of protein structure prediction. Uh, protein structure prediction is the process of predicting the structure of a protein from its amino acid sequence. Explain what it means to predict a protein structure in a little more detail. Right. So we think that for most proteins, they basically have a single structure. What that means is that you know, that thread effectively gets kind of folded up in one particular configuration. That's not entirely true. These things move a little bit, and, and actually some proteins do have multiple configurations. But for our purposes, we can just imagine there's one configuration. And so the prediction has to do with basically saying where each of those amino acids is going to be relative to every other amino acid. Where are they going to be placed when the protein sort of finally finds its lowest energy state, when it finally finds its fold. Okay, so like basically because you've got this thread where there's hydrophobic forces that act on the thread in in a uh, physically consistent fashion, like every every time it seems to happen uh, the same way because you know physics doesn't really change from from moment to moment as far as we know. You know the, the these hydrophobic forces are consistent. And, you know that the relationship is always you've just got this thread sitting in water, and the water molecules are you know since they're so pervasive around this thread, you know you're all, you're kind of always going to get the same reaction between all these water mo- molecules that are floating around the non-folded protein structure and the the non-folded protein structure itself. That's right. Okay. So why do we want to predict the structure of a protein? So the, the, short, the short answer is because the structure determines the function. And so if we could predict this to a large extent, and so if we could predict the functions of all proteins, then we would, we would get a lot of insight into how a cell works, for example. And, and that's really kind of the basic science answer. There, there are many applied answers, maybe the most important of which is that many drugs operate by sort of modulating the function of a specific protein, typically inhibiting that protein. And so if you want to make a drug that modulates a protein, it helps tremendously to actually know what the protein looks like. Can you just walk me through what an example protein prediction process would look like? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So there are many answers because there are many approaches. But I would say kind of maybe the canonical approach that what people have been doing for maybe the last 10, 15 years basically involve this kind of fairly complicated process, you know, millions of lines of code with, you know, with code to, to actually do all this. But, but basically, you take that initial sequence, you try to find correlations in the data that we already have about real, stru- real proteins that tell you how small fragments of the protein uh, of, of how a small progress of any protein look like. So you do this sort of local matching where you say, oh, you know, this triplet or this, this 10 amino acid stretch is going to have this shape because I know I've seen the shape somewhere else, roughly speaking. So you, have, you build this big database, you have all these little fragments, and then you, you, you do sort of like a physical simulation where you're trying these different fragments from your database while at the same time trying to kind of minimize the energy of your protein based on sort of what's known about the physics. And you do this over and over and over again for a long time. And the, the hope is that by the, done, by the time you're done, you end up with something that looks like the real, the real structure. So that's one version. In that version that you just discussed, is that a purely computational process? Or are there 
wet lab procedures that you need to do, physical world procedures you need to do? So the process I described is purely computational. I mean, it, 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 and the, I mean, the objective here is to try to computationally predict the structure of a protein. There are, of course, experimental ways to do this. And the data I was referring to, the data that, that sort of forms the basis for doing this procedure, comes from experiments. But, but the procedure itself is purely computational. There are these other methods for doing uh, protein structure analysis. There are things like cryo-electron microscopy and x-ray crystallography. These are real-world engagements. Can you, uh, I guess, contrast or describe how these computational methods compare and can be used in concert, perhaps, with, with these physical-world procedures? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, suffice it to say that for the time being, at least, the gold standard remains experiments, and, and particularly crystal crystallography, and, and cryo EM sort of an, you know it's a, it's a newer technology that that's that's it's really sweeping through the field, but it's maybe not quite there yet as uh, being in terms of being as accurate as crystallography. So the, these experiments uh, they're quite laborious, right? That's the issue. So so they often it could take a very long time to to get a protein structure, uh, months to years. And the cost, the estimates vary, but on average, let's say, it's probably on the order of about $50,000 to, to get a structure. Uh, but that doesn't really, really illustrate the reality, because what happens, some structures are just very difficult. And so you could spend millions and you conceivably never get the structure. Some structures are more readily sort of at, uh, obtainable, and so perhaps they wouldn't cost so much. But, but in general, it's a very laborious process, costs a lot of money, it's not, it doesn't always work. But, but when it does work, it gives you the, the truth. It gives you typically, you know, after some, uh, some bias, but it gives you something that, that we think is, is the truth. The computational approaches vary. So the stuff that I was just describing earlier, these complicated three million lines of code type of things, they typically take maybe on the order of, if you're doing kind of the full pipeline, on the order of, say, 10,000 CPU hours. Uh, so uh, generally speaking, not, not that bad. So they're not very expensive. Of course, the problem is that uh, they're still not very good. So maybe they work quickly, but they don't necessarily give you the right answer. And just so we don't lose the lead here, before we start to get into the details of the computational stuff, talking about the purely uh, physical world experimentation side of things, you know, the 50 grand per deriving a protein structure uh, experimentation process like cryo-EM or x-ray crystallography, as far as I know, the process, it looks something like you get like some purified DNA, and then you basically put this purified DNA into water, and then you watch the, the protein, you know, develop into its fully realized form, and then you use these microscopy or crystallography techniques to understand what the outcome was. Tell me, tell me where I'm wrong or, or any clarifications that would be worth making. Yeah, well, I mean, the details depend a lot on the approach. And actually, these approaches are, are quite different in terms of how, how one does them. But, I mean, for example, with, with crystallography, let's say, so there are, there are multiple steps. Maybe the, the, the hardest thing is to actually get the protein to crystallize, quote-unquote. So you write that you have to take, you have to get these proteins, you have to make them first. That's doable. You have to purify them, so you have to get them in sort of a you know, fairly pure form. But, the, but then the, 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 the trick is that you have to get them to actually form a crystal. And that process, for the most part, and I'm not an expert in, in this, but, but uh, it, it tends to be you know, a, sort of a lot of black magic, a lot of trial and error, uh, lots of different conditions that you have to try, to different solutions and so on, to get the, to get the, protein, to, to get the protein to actually crystallize. Once it crystallizes, it forms basically a regular lattice, right? And so once that happens, then we basically use sort of x-rays to diffract through this crystal. And, and by getting this, the diffraction pattern, we're able to sort of work back and get, get the actual structure. But the great limiting step, uh, to my understanding at least, it's really the, the crystallization step. That, that's a, I'm getting, getting a big enough crystal is the hard part. Okay. Sounds brutal. <laughs> so let's get into the computation side of things. There is this community-wide experiment called CASP, C-A-S-P, Critical Assessment of Techniques for Protein Structure Prediction. Explain what this organization is and give me a brief history of it. Yeah, sure. So, so you know, this is a very important problem. Protein structure prediction has been going on for over half a century. And people, you know, have been trying to solve it for a very long time. And, and there was a period, probably in the 90s maybe, uh, where there were a lot of these sort of false, false alarms, where people kind of claimed they solved the problem, made a lot of sort of headlines, at least in the scientific community, uh, only to realize that, that, in fact, they had not. It wasn't necessarily like fraud or anything, but just people, people got a little bit too excited. 
so I think it was around 94 when, when this CASP sort of process got formalized. And, and the idea was to say, okay, let, let's, let's, let's try to get, to get at this very rigorously. And so, the, so what we're going to do is we're going to have this sort of biennial competition or assessment where we set aside a small subset of proteins whose structures we already know because someone, someone has had gone and crystallized them, uh, but they're not yet publicly available. So they're not, you know, people don't know what, you know, broadly speaking, people don't know what they look like. Just a handful of people know what they look like. And what we're going to do is we're going to give the sequences of those proteins to predictors, to people who claim they can predict the structure without giving them the structure. And then we'll, we'll, we'll have them, you know, go at it for a few months, uh, try to make these predictions. And then uh, once, once everybody does their thing, then by the end of the, the year, it typically happens in December, everyone gets together and then compares those predicted structures to the ones we know are, are true. And, and then see how, how, how everyone else has done. So why has this been arranged in, in this competition world? Why is this, I guess, a useful construct for the academic world, I guess now for the industrial world, which we will get into, or maybe it's been a part of the industrial world for a while? Give me a little bit more context for how this organization or this, this competition uh, is useful to the world. Yeah, well, it's, it's, useful, it's useful precisely because it allows assessment in a blind fashion, right? The, the issue before is when, when you know the answer, it's easy to pretend like you, 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 you get that. It's, people have all sorts of biases. And so what was going on, evidently, because people had access to the true structure, their predictions effectively cheated in a way. They, they, they sort of knew what they were trying to get to, and so, that, so they could get to it. By forcing the predictions to be completely blind, uh, it, it provides this level of rigor, that no one can fool others or fool, fool themselves in thinking their predictions are working uh, because they don't, you know, because they can't compare to the ground truth. And so, so it's, it's really about providing that kind of insulation between data and, and sort of, you know, if you think of the machine learning context, it's, it's providing perfect insulation between training sets and test sets. And that obviously happens in, in, in machine learning as well, like in ImageNet and so on. That drove deep learning and, and all that. So it's, it's perfectly analogous. So this has been going for 13 years, is that right? 14, I guess, yeah, just over. 14 years. So what are some of the approaches that people take to protein prediction, and how has that, the competitive landscape evolved over time? Actually, I take it back because it's 24 years. There's been 13 of them, but they haven't every two years, so it's really 26 years, sorry. But yeah. Oh, wow, okay, yeah, all it's, right. It's, it's so we have an even longer, longer yeah. timeline to explore in your answer. Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering what the predictions what the prediction strategies have looked like over the years uh, like over the how has the the competitive landscape evolved in the last 26 years Yeah 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 so this is this is kind of before I was on the on the scene but but my my understanding of the history was that I think that the very initial phase was actually I think a lot of it was physics driven so people were trying to really seriously simulate these things and I don't think that went very very far the, the first sort of major kind of breakthrough or sort of new approach uh, came out of the, the Baker Lab, which is kind of the, maybe the biggest group in the, in the space. And that was this kind of fragment-based approach I was referring to, where the people, people were doing the sort of thing where I was mentioning, you know, you have this database and you, you, you put fragments in and out and so on. And that, that went on for, for a long time. And I, and I would say it's, it's the workhorse of the, of the field. People were iterating and, and trying different things. But, but the basic paradigm, I think, was health fixed for a long time. Then uh, around, uh, let's say, 2012, 2011, there was a fairly important breakthrough. Um, I can get into it in, in detail if you like later on, but based on this notion of co-evolution, where people looked at how these proteins evolve and, and using sort of that type of information, uh, were able to make, to make such, uh, structure predictions. These predictions didn't impact CAS immediately. It took a few years for it to sort of kick in, but when it did, it, it made a big, big difference. And then now, just the last couple of years, deep learning is sort of sweeping through, and that's really maybe kind of the third wave now, where we have these sort of deep learning-based approaches that, that are leveraging all these all earlier ideas, but kind of taking them in a new direction. So it sounds like the co-evolution point is necessary to understand the deep learning side of things. Uh, is, would, you, would you say that's correct? Yes. So okay, so let's... Yeah. So, so explain that that coevolution innovation that occurred around 2011-2012. Yeah, so so it, it was very much sort of also was driven by the fact that genome sequencing, so this parallel technology, right, was was getting to the point where we were able to get many many sequences of different organisms and so on. So now, what, what that enabled is that for a given protein, uh, you could ask 
for, effectively for its cousins. You could ask, you know, can you give me a list of 100,000 other proteins in other organisms, you know, if you're looking at the human protein, say, look at analogous proteins in, in, in other organisms that are very similar to this protein, but, but slightly different, right? They're, they're, they're evolutionarily related, but, but there's some distance between them. So what that allows is building what are called multiple sequence alignments, where you take, say, 100,000 proteins all related and sort of line them up so that you can compare how each position in this protein sort of changes over time. And the key piece is the following. The key piece is that in some cases what, what we observe is that as one position changes, as one amino acid mutates, it, it, it appears that another amino acid in a, in a different location but in the same protein uh, changes soon after. So there's this sort of coupling where one position appears to, to respond to another position. And, and the, the, the notion is, is that what, what happens inside the protein is because these things are in, in close spatial proximity, they're actually close in 3D space, uh, if one of them, you know, if there's a substitution where a small amino acid becomes a big amino acid, then that might suddenly kind of clash with its neighborhood. And so if there was a, a nearby amino acid that was also big, suddenly it has to shrink. It ha- you have to substitute it to a small amino acid. And so these sort of compensatory mutations indicate proximity in 3D space. So, so we're taking evolutionary information and we're conv- converting it into 3D information. And that allows one, this kind of 3D coupling of, of things being close in 3D space, allows one to go and say, allows one to sort of provide very strong constraints on what the structure looks like, which then enables us to predict the structure. Okay, let's, let's now talk a little bit about deep learning and then let's come back to that co-evolution point. And because and, I think, you know, it's, it's worth exploring deep learning a little bit before we get into why the co-evolution point is so useful for deep learning based protein structure prediction approaches. Okay, I guess, speaking broadly, why is protein structure prediction a good candidate problem for the techniques of deep learning? So, right, on one level, it's a well-defined problem, right? So you have inputs and you have outputs. It's very much a supervised machine learning problem. The inputs being the sequences, the outputs being the structure. And typically, it's a one-to-one map. There's not all the, to the noise and, and kind of unpredictability that characterizes so many other areas of biology, say. So, so at least in the, kind of the, say, the physical sciences, it's the, the closest thing to something that's like a, a kind of canonical machine learning problem. You, you could say that there isn't that much data, Typically, there's probably on the order of about 50,000 proteins that we really have to work with in terms of structures. So the data is somewhat limited uh, relative to kind of conventional deep learning applications, domains. Uh, but, but in general, it, it, it's amenable to that, kind of, uh, to that kind of analysis. So that lack of data, can you talk a little bit more about why this is a lack of data? And I guess just describe a little bit more like, okay, so I mean, we've done all these shows about kind of what supervised learning is, but maybe you could give like, describe how, how supervised learning works, at least in, in the most naive strategies of protein structure prediction. Right. So, so supervised learning, the idea is that you have some model, some function. It could, could be a neural network, it could be something else. But that function effectively relates your inputs to your outputs. So the simplest case, you know, if you're trying to predict whether how much a car costs, right, the inputs may be the model of the car, uh, you know, which year it's made, whatever, that sort of thing, the kind of features it has. And then based on those inputs, you have, you have a number, which is the, the cost of the car. And then typically you have these parameters, these sort of weights in the function that you don't fix ahead of time. You, you, they're, they're free parameters. And what the machine learning or the supervised learning algorithm does, it sort of finds the configuration of those parameters that most closely gives you a good mapping between the inputs and the outputs. So, that, so you, ha- you have some ground truth, right? You, you know that, where the two outputs are, and then you're trying to kind of optimize these parameters so that the, the, the inputs map into the, the, the outputs. So in, in the context of proteins, the, again, the inputs are the sequences, the outputs are the, are the structure, and so you, ha- you want to have some function that does this mapping. One reason why, in some ways, supervised learning is, a, is maybe is a good kind of paradigm for this is because we, you know, it does appear to be the case that um, there are these sort of patterns, that these sequence patterns that seem to correspond to these structural uh, patterns. Right? You know, I, I mentioned earlier this whole notion of fragments and how these fragments are sort of used to build up proteins. So, so that already tells you that there is some sort of decomposition in which a protein is really like a hierarchical object with, with multiple subparts. And, and we know, at least in the context of deep learning and things like natural language processing and, and image recognition, that that seems to be how deep learning works, is sort of by decomposing a problem into, into smaller subparts. And so there, again, is sort of a nice analogy between kind of the canonical deep learning approaches and protein structure. Okay. Now let's come back to the coevolution. Uh, innovation that was made in 2011-2012. How is that 
a useful factoid or understanding, scientific understanding to these deep learning hackers that are trying to figure out uh, protein structure prediction. Right. So, so the, the, the kind of the method I described earlier, the, the 2011-2012 one, effectively all it provides are constraints. It doesn't completely solve the problem. All it tells you are, is, you know, are two amino acids in proximity to one another. And it's not even perfect. So sometimes the predictions are actually incorrect. But it provides these sort of high-level constraints. And what typically was done in 2012 and 2011 was to take these kind of constraints and then feed them through the conventional pipelines I was describing, these 3 million lines of code pipelines, uh, which then uses additional information and physical simulations and so on to try to fold the protein. So, so the paradigm was not sort of fundamentally altered in terms of how you simulate and so on. You just provided more information to help the, this process along. Where deep learning helps is to basically refine these predictions. So instead of, like, like I said earlier, you know, these predictions are just kind of very close-grained. They're saying two residues are in proximity to one another, one another and they may, may, may or may not be accurate. What deep learning, at least up to, say, 2018 <laughs> had done, is basically take these kind of raw predictions from, or raw calculations, rather, from the coevolution set, and then turn them into more accurate predictions of contact. So tell me if, if I if I understand it correctly. With the coevolution understanding, you basically get to uh, inflate the amount of data that you have available for these deep learning techniques, which which we know by now are unreasonably effective on large data sets. Well, it's actually interesting. It hasn't really been used in that way that you just proposed. That that is not a bad idea in a way. One could use this information as outputs instead of say, okay, we're going to predict these things. Uh, but that's not typically how they're used. They, they rather use as inputs. So, so they don't really increase the number of data points because we're still stuck with those 50,000 or what have you, but, but they add additional information per data point. So they, they make your input modality mm. richer, if that makes mm. sense. So instead of just having sequences, you also have these, these evolutionary contacts. Okay. So not to, not to bury the lead here, but you had this, this really uh, detailed blog post that was a retrospect on CASP-13. CASP-13 was, a, was one of these competitions, these, these protein structure prediction competitions. And what was, uh, what was unusual about this competition is that it was won by DeepMind. And DeepMind is the company that was acquired by Google. And uh, they, they're, they're an innovator in deep learning techniques. They were able to create the first system that was able to beat every human uh, or, or the, the best humans at Go. For example, that was AlphaGo. They later uh, innovated upon that with AlphaZero. And then they, at CASP-13, managed to uh, decimate the competition with something called AlphaFold. Explain why this is a significant event. Uh, sure. So, I mean, I, I would say it's maybe significant in two ways. One is the fact that they did well. I, you know, I, I don't think it's... It, it, the, the improvement is probably on the order... I, I mentioned this in the blog, on the, on the order of like 2x, right? So, sort of, if you look at historically how much CASP has been, has been kind of improving from, from year to year, this sort of doubled the expected rate of improvement. So, so and the, the gap they had between them and the, the second closest competitor was, was much higher than usual. So, so in that sense, you know, they, they simply didn't solve the problem, but they, they made substantial progress. And for that, it was significant. The other reason, maybe perhaps it was more kind of sociological, is that uh, it's a company. And, and uh, this, this field has is, is been dominated by academics uh, for its entirety. There's not, to my knowledge, been any prior entrant from industry. So, so this was really kind of the first time that, that a serious kind of industrial lab decides to enter, to enter the space. In computer science, we've been watching how would you say, I guess the the evolution of the dynamics between academia and industry for a while now. I mean, you look at like, I think the, the MapReduce paper comes to mind, you know, the Google, Google MapReduce paper, this thing that came out of Google that totally turned uh, computer science on its head uh, in some ways. And uh, and I, I think probably, you know, there's some f- fear or, or envy, or I, I don't want to use those words because that makes it sound like a negative event or, or adoration perhaps of the fact that such a, such a beautiful piece of research could come out of a corporation. And since then, there's been this in, in interesting dynamic between academia and industry. How do you see the dynamics between academia and industry and, uh, like, I guess, historically or in the last 10, 20 years? And how does the, the deep mind win of CASP change your, your belief in those dynamics? 
Yeah. So again, there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, you, you certainly. <laughs> Sorry like, about that. No, no, no. But yeah, but it's, a good, it's a great question. And I, and I, feel, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned computer science because I, you know I'd like to think of myself as a computer scientist as well. And you know, I've been following how how that's been transformed, particularly in, in machine learning in the, in the past few years, right? And you know, the, the, many people have been maybe slightly upset that oh, you know, all these academics are, are leaving in some ways academia and going to industry, right? Arguably now the best best machine learning laboratories are. Uh, you know, Google and Facebook and so on, and not Stanford and MIT and so on. Um, so, so, so there, there is that. There's definitely there's been that shift, and I think like, I think biology maybe is lagging a little bit in a few years. So I think we, we may, potentially we might see something similar. Maybe what I would say in, in biology, sort of historically, is there's definitely been a lot of interaction between industry and academia, particularly in sort of on the translational end, right? Instead of biomedicine, uh, because pharmaceuticals obviously have been very much interested in, in, in developing, needless to say, drugs. And, 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 so, and so far as that sort of intersects with research, it, it's often been the case that there's been kind of a synergistic relationship. What's unusual about DeepMind and sort of just kind of more the historical context is that there's not been that much, uh, in, there's not really been pretty much any involvement from industry, especially big companies, in basic, basic research. Uh, biological research. There, there, there have been handful of companies that have done, I would say, sort of fairly basic biological research, like Schrodinger, for example, but, but they're smaller. These kind of large companies have not really been kind of interested in the space. And so in that sense, it's sort of a new dynamic that, that we see interest in, in sort of fairly basic problems in biology. Tell me more about your personal reaction to the deep mind win, like in terms of both emotion and how you're thinking about your own career. How did you feel about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it was, it was sort of a, you know, it was a multi-stage process in a way. Uh, you know, so I, I was also competing in CAF and, you know, I've, I've been sort of developing kind of deep learning approaches as well. So it's, so I had sort of skin in the game in a way. So from that perspective, you know, obviously I was sort of disappointed in a week, you could say, but, but that, that, that may more have more to do with, with uh, me not winning as opposed to sort of them winning. And you know, if that makes sense, it's, it's just because we're all competing for the same thing. So, so, and so there was that, that initial disappointment. But I mean, I think on the whole, obviously, this is good. This is great news for the field, both because they're they bringing more attention to it, and because uh, they've, they've helped move it forward. And, and in that sense, at the end of the day, we're all we're all in this to see protein structure get better. So I think that's that's a net win. Longer term, I mean, I think for the time being, I'm not going to sort of alter my research direction very much. I mean, I think it's you know, it, I, I think it would be silly to before to see how how engaged DeepMind and everyone else is in, in this space. I think what we will see, I suspect, and, and, and my, myself, I think I'm going to listen to my own advice here, is that just like in computer science, where there's been maybe some bifurcation in the sense that the kind of very compute-heavy approaches that just require a ton of ton of data and just tons of resources to see through, th- those have become the domain of, of Google and Facebook and so on. And, and I think in academia, we're going to see the same thing, where people are going to move away from these sort of resource-heavy approaches and, and shift toward things that are maybe a bit more kind of methodological, a bit more novelty and sort of creativity-driven. Maybe, maybe as a, at the end of the day, don't work as well, say, as the kind of resource-heavy approaches, but they point the path forward toward kind of toward more innovative directions that, that, would, you know, that would be useful down, down, down the line. Um, and, and so that, that's my kind of t- my projection for how this, how this will play out. That's a fascinating analysis uh, in light of, you know, some of the trends that I've been seeing in in new software companies where there's there's certainly an aversion to creating a company or or a module or a software project that cannot compete with the data advantage and the resource advantage of these giant companies. In some sense it's 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 useful on the on the industry as a constraint because it forces people to think a little bit more creatively about how to build businesses in light of these enormous monoliths. We're running up against time. I, I'd love to know a little bit more about what you consider I guess the ongoing evolution between this academic and industry world. And specifically, what are the durable competitive advantages? If we think about academia versus industry as areas that are competing with each other, what are the durable competitive advantages of academia? Um, I, I think the primary one is is the fact that you you probably I mean how how true this is is is, is not entirely clear, but but at least in principle anyway, let's just say. In academia, you sort of have freedom to follow your heart and sort of try to do, you know, to try to pursue any kind of approach that, that appeals to you. Uh, while I think in industry, I think there is there's sort of more of a pressure to sort of, you know, produce results that, that kind of that, you know, that, that have a wow factor. Uh, so I, I think in that in that regard, uh, academia may have an advantage in, in being able to sort of pursue these sort of more out of the box or sort of fairly kind of unorthodox approaches. 
But to be clear, and I think this is what makes this, this era, I think, particularly interesting, is that you do have companies, uh, even uh, maybe you call them even institutions, so the right, the, right, the right word, like DeepMind, which are actually pretty interested in doing basic science. Right? Well, I think, that's what I think is quite different about this. I and mean, maybe this kind of harks back to the days of Bell Labs and so on. I mean, they're quite different in a way than, say, um, so like Google research, right? The kind of the, the more historically construed, because they're not, as far as I can tell, they're not under any pressure to sort of immediately produce a product. So in that, in that sense, I think that they do provide a, a, you know, a very compelling a competitor to academia in, in that regard. Maybe the last thing I'll add on this point is where I think they might enter some trouble if they try to kind of go beyond these very well-defined problems. So the nice thing with protein structure prediction is that the question's already been figured out for you, right? We, sort of, we know the question is, we just need to solve it. And, and that's quite rare, actually, in, in, in science, right? Uh, most of the time, it's, it's asking the right question that's that's the hard part, and so I think if they decide to sort of move in, in the direction where they're trying to kind of effectively come up with their own questions and sort of broaden the the the, the breadth of the the questions they, they they try to tackle or the problems they try to tackle, that's where I think they will they want they will run into some trouble. But so long as it's very well defined, I, I think they're going to provide some some very tough competition. Now I'm I'm really hoping to eventually do a show with with somebody from DeepMind. You know, and maybe in in that episode we can go a little bit deeper into AlphaFold and how it works because I think with you and I we we haven't really gone into the depths of how that works and at this point it's probably beyond the scope of this conversation. So maybe maybe we could just kind of close on on some thoughts about that fact. Like I, I've I've tried to do shows with DeepMind and it's been it's been pretty tough and that that's totally their prerogative. That's that's absolutely fine. But I would say it is some. It does does kind of illustrate one of the durable competitive advantages of academia, which is its openness and its kind of lack of the pressures of industry. And you see this this uh, the gradient between these two worlds. I think being explored by OpenAI. Uh, I think OpenAI is kind of the the first. What we see, I, I, I'm I'm really happy that OpenAI exists. I didn't really realize how important it would be when it was started. I guess four or five years ago, but um, you know, OpenAI, you you kind of have this default open environment in contrast to this sort of impenetrable opacity of DeepMind that only gains shades of transparency through promotional blog posts. So I guess, you know, as a, as a closing um, closing topic, how do you see the, I guess, the, the rising competition, if, if you would describe it that way, or, or co-opetition between OpenAI and DeepMind? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting you say all this because in some ways, I think <laughs> the differences may, may begin to shrink in a bit, unfortunately, because, you know, OpenAI just recently decided they're going to become a, a limited for-profit, right? So, you know, they have this sort of mechanism where they were... But for fairly virtuous reasons. Quite, quite possibly, yeah, right, right, but well, but, but I mean, the, the problem, obviously, is that structurally, once once things change, then, then you sort of depend on, on the goodwill of the people involved, and, and obviously that changes over time, so it's hard to guarantee. I think, you know what, I mean, it's an interesting point. And I, to, to be honest, I think we suffer from this in academia a little bit. I mean, I, I talk about this in the blog post where I think so, some of the things that have held back uh, protein structure prediction work in, in, in academia is the fact that people are a bit secretive and, and they're not, you know, at least they don't, they don't sort of publish their results until every two years or whatever when this cast thing happens. And I think that's held us back. I think computer science has been much healthier in a way because it's been much more iterative and, and people publish much more quickly. So I would say as an ecosystem, so, you know, initially when I was answering a question, I was thinking from the perspective of an individual lab. But as an ecosystem, I do think academia does provide a very compelling alternative, right? Because you, you do have, like you just said, it is much more open. And of course, as big as DeepMind may be, it, it's not going to sort of compete with this bizarre, right? bizarre rather, of different <laughs> ideas, right? You know, yeah, uh, of, of different ideas, right? Sort of to, to kind of take an open source analogy. So, so I think there's a certain eclecticism to, to how academic research is done and, and it's like an openness that just makes it sort of a new ideas bubble up all the time and, and that i think in the long run will, will, will i think prove to be durable mohammed al Qureshi, thank you so much for coming on the show it's been enlightening to talk with you oh thank you very much for having me wow